Hello and welcome to the latest in the Balderton Capital podcast series. I'm here with Steve O'Hare of TechCrunch. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for coming hey. on. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. And what we'll be getting into, what we'll be getting our teeth into very shortly is Steve's thoughts on the future of journalism. Where is the media and journalism industry heading over the next five 10, 20 years. But before that, I thought we'd let Steve uh, introduce himself to us because as opposed to many journalists, he's got quite an interesting uh, and varied history and, and route into journalism. Most most interestingly for myself is that you've also been a co-founder, a CEO of a, a startup of people. I wonder if you could talk to us about that. Why did you sort of jump out of TechCrunch, out of journalism and do this startup? What was so compelling about that? And then, and then why to... Why did you go back in after? What pulled you back in? Yeah, sure. I'd done journalism at various publications like ZUNet and even started a publication of my own for a few years. And then I joined TechCrunch Europe and I stayed there, I think, for 18 months. But during that time, you know, you're, you're talking to entrepreneurs, you're writing other people's stories. And in all honesty, like the, the, the original strapline of TechCrunch was obsessively profiling startups, right? And just after a while, just because my background before journalism was was quite product orientated, I just thought like I, I want to have a go. I mean, I wanted to do a startup of my own, but you know, didn't really have sort of you know, you don't do a startup for the sake of it, right? You wait for an opportunity. And then um, I got approached by a very talented developer who was in desperate need of sort of the business and strategy and communication side, and um, yeah, he kind of flattered me for ages and <laughs> you know when you talk to entrepreneurs you can't help but want to have a go you know it's all about having a go isn't it so anyway yeah so I got this offer to co-found a startup and I just thought I mean it's funny because it's not really turned out that way but this is 2000 late 2009 I thought if I don't do it now right it might not happen I mean people uh, talk about a bubble bursting all the time right so it was like go and have a go so yeah so I, I it was quite a hard decision, but in the end, I left TechCrunch to co-found uh, what was what we call Beeple, and Beeple was a question and answer site, but it was um, it like had machine learning, so it knew who to send the correct questions to to get the best quality answer. Um, I guess now you'd call it artificial intelligence. We weren't quite as arrogant, but yeah. Uh, and and yeah, what was so yeah. tempting about it? Did you think that this is? you know because you're a journalist in your bones was it something about this expert-led question and answer format that drew you towards it did you think this is where you know expertise-led journalism for example is gonna head so yeah i mean like i love social software right when i was at zegonet that was my beat i was covering all the early social networks and i mean social got baked into everything but like i loved consumer-facing social software because just the, the heart of the internet is kind of bringing people together and finding new ways of expressing you know yourself right so it took that box it was social um and it had the whole expertise element to it so i guess that tapped into like subject experts which obviously interested me as well but in all honesty it was more the the, the co-founder the cto was very very talented quite charismatic i mean he could sell a bigger idea and it, we definitely had way bigger ideas than just the question and answer site. Um, and also, when he showed me an early prototype, because he'd been working on this thing for, for a couple of years, 
as a journalist, as someone who looks at products like every single day, I could just see everything that was wrong with it. And but didn't think it was hard to fix, right? And it's like, you know, when you think you can bring a lot of value to something, that's attractive as well. And plus he was terrible at all the communications and the pitching and and all that sort of stuff. So it, it seemed like a really good fit, right? And looking at people and what uh, became of, of people, I, you see on Crunchbase that there was an exit to Brand Embassy at the end. Uh, and that feels like good news. It reads like good news. But I've uh, listened to you on other podcasts and other interviews. And you say that the company... Uh, in quotes, ultimately failed. How do you how do you reconcile those two things? Well, I mean, it was a failure. It didn't. We more or less launched on time. I mean, in terms of burn rate, we were more or less on the schedule. Uh, we built a good product. It got great reviews. I mean, people were talking about us being a Cora killer. I mean, people liked the product, but and I got and then the VCs thought this was easy, right? Because I got tons of publicity. Like we were basically everywhere from CNN. Obviously, places like TechCrunch, the next web, uh, fast company. Like we just on day one of launch, and even the following couple of days, we were just everywhere. But it didn't, and this this would be really interesting to listen to. Like it did not correlate with signups. Right, people said they loved it. They loved the the actual product. You know, the simple design. It was because I had a great UX guy, um, one of the other co-founders, a great great designer. We were all rounder, and but it just didn't it didn't get pick up. And then we sort of internally we were looking at well, why are people saying they love it but they're not coming back, right? And we were looking to fix those things. And then um, me and the CTO didn't really get on that well by that point. It was a struggle the whole the whole time, in honesty. And obviously that gets back to a familiar theme of be careful who you choose as your co-founder, right? But I mean yeah. he chose he chose me. I'm not sure who got the bad deal. Um, but <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, it just didn't get picked up. So. Um, so that's so it didn't as a consumer product it definitely in the time it lived which wasn't that long it failed but the technology was quite interesting and ultimately the vcs you know they they would they, we could have raised another round honestly i remember i had a discussion with one vc one of the investors and he was like let's go out and get another round and by that point i just i felt it wasn't working so i was i was a bit surprised but yeah the exit um you're right it wasn't a successful exit it was one of those kind of Let's tidy up, tidy up the paperwork and make it look attractive, which taught me, I mean, I know we're going to talk about this, but that was an eye opener of how to wrap up a failure as a relative success. Because what I, yeah, because that brings me on to something, as you know, I wanted to talk to you about. It seems just to hear you talk about it in these last couple of moments, you learned an incredible amount and experienced an incredible amount in those uh, couple of years of people has that made you a better journalist? And I, I, I asked that in light of comments made by Cara Swisher and an event that I think is going on right now in, in Dublin, where she said, and this isn't a direct quote, I kind of scratched it down as I was listening to the live feed, that journalists who write about business in the main uh, have never run a business, so therefore don't understand them intrinsically, and therefore their coverage as a result isn't as good as it can be. In the light of that, one, do you agree with what Cara is saying? And secondly, do you think you are a better journalist because of your experience? So I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the overall point. I think it can be over, overplayed. I don't think you need to have done a business to be a good business journalist because journalism is a very specific skill. And the main skill is that you, if you don't know something, something you know who, who to talk to to know it, right? It's like know what you don't know and be very... Um, 
tenacious and and an agitator ask questions that people don't want to don't want answered and you know it's it's a whole sort of skill in itself triangulating sources knowing when someone's feeding you absolute bullshit um <laughs> you know so i don't i don't necessarily think you need to be to have a business uh, direct business practical background to be a good business journalist you just need to be a good journalist and and learn you know learn from the bigger picture right but that said definitely for me personally going and doing a startup i came back and i think i'm a way better journalist for it but that was mainly because um it made it force me to do things like uh, go through the fundraising process right so so you write you know as a journalist especially someone like TechCrunch, you write about funding but if you've never sat down and negotiated a, a terrible term sheet into a good one or learn what um you know even just things like learning what preferential shares are right i mean and dealing with lawyers and realizing that lawyers when startups fail two people always make money lawyers and cloud uh, providers that's what i learned but yeah so no, I mean, yeah so i definitely improving it maybe sort of want to come back and be a little bit more aggressive to try and tell more of the truth about how hard it is to succeed as an entrepreneur and the kind of battles that you go through and and also the relationship between venture capital and entrepreneurs like for example this is definitely the eye-opener for me was when you're fundraising there's a massive conflict of interest and that's something we, we talk about in journalism all the time and that is that you're there to tell the vcs effectively what they want to hear because you want to close the funding right and then yet the minute you've closed the funding they're in, in effect your business partners and you have to open up and tell them what, how it really is, right? And that, that's what I know. I find that a very bizarre. In journalism, that wouldn't happen. You don't tell, you don't, you're not trying to convince someone to find you one day and then having to be transparent in the 100% human sense, right? As when, the minute you start going into business, right? Does that, does that make sense? That does make sense because in the pitch as an entrepreneur, you're convincing this VC to give you money is essentially the point. But when, when you have, it's in both of your best interests, the VC and the entrepreneur, to be completely transparent. And yes. what you're saying is there's more often than not a discord between what's in the pitch deck and then what's in the kind of open, honest, transparent conversation that happens a day after close. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, our, our, our investment had tranches in it, right? It was I had milestones. It's, it's, it's milestones. Yeah. So the whole time you're trying to close the funding, you're saying, yeah, yeah, we can meet those milestones. But, but then don't make them too high because we do want the second charge of funding, right? And and there's this kind of thing goes on and and they say, but what, you know, I don't know, they sort of, they'll say, well, what happens if Google comes and does something similar? And you, you're telling them, oh, that will never happen or that's not a problem or whatever. It's like, it's it feels, it just felt, it, for me, it felt very strange trying to convince someone that your startup is going to be a guaranteed success. And then, like I said, like within three months, you're like, right, we've, you know, we've launched the alpha and there's this problem or, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, for me, it's bizarre because like I say, in journalism, you're thinking about conflicts of interest all the time. And they, they, to me, they're pretty clear cut in that fundraising process. The fact that literally when the money hits the bank, the next day, the relationship changes completely again. I, I found that a bit, a bit of an eye opener. 
And let's move that back into journalism and talk about, as I say, the relationship between church and state in media and journalism, i.e. the method by which the publication is paid for versus how the journalists are paid and how the publication makes money to pay its staff. Is well documented and lots of people talk on the subject of the kind of difficult relationship between capitalism and journalism. Given how media has progressed over the years, it's no longer the case that the price you pay on the front of your newspaper pays for the, uh, and the advertising within that, that are in little block ads on the side. No longer does that pay for the journalistic staff. The methods by which publications have to earn their money have changed. So what I want to get is kind of your thoughts between where that church and state line currently sits and could it move and should it move? I mean, the answer is it shouldn't move. Um, and I don't believe in any any credible publication it has. But that wall between the business, if you like the business uh, unit of a publication and editorial should always be kept absolutely separate. And everywhere that I've worked at, that has been the case. I mean, there's a sort of kind of a slight misunderstanding. Sometimes the journalists or the, the writers, I mean, you know, honestly, we're so far down on the on the ground, right? We mm. we don't we're not we're not involved in any of that sort of business side of it. We just hope we get paid at the end of the month, right? And we're just told at TechCrunch, I mean, well, it's a great place to work. We're just told, go and do great work. Go and do your best work. Go and pursue things that interest you. Um, obviously, we have discussions all the time when there's planning about, you know, how to cover a big event, like a, like a, like a, the Apple, the recent Apple event. You know, that's, and those kind of things are done sort of with military precision in terms of sort of allocating who will cover what, what bit and, and how we how we cover sort of some huge piece of news that we know is happening in advance, right? Or like, I don't know, like a Facebook earnings call or whatever. Like, we do have a lot of planning and there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's to make sure it's done really thoroughly and properly and everyone knows which bit of the, of, you know, of the coverage they're, they're handling, right? But at the same time, we have so much freedom. So, I mean, if I have an idea tomorrow, I don't necessarily have to run it past anyone. There's a certain amount of trust level. And we just, like I say, we're just told to go and do, you know, good work, right? And in that sense, we're not involved. We don't really have a clue, really, what's going on with the um, business side, you know, in terms of how, how it all gets paid for. Obviously, places like TechCrunch and lots of publications doing that, having conferences and other kind of add, like value-add elements to their products, right? But to make it really simple, what I was going to say was, what I've learned about online media is, in the end, if you build a brand, right, it's the brands that last, right? It's like, if TechCrunch doesn't know what it stands for and doesn't know what, what area of tech coverage we do or strive to do the best, right, then it, then it wouldn't work. And I feel like all the um, tech publications that have remained and that have grown have developed a brand that means something to readers. And if that... Um, that divide between commercial and editorial was ever to break or to be seen to break, then that would destroy the brand overnight, it, unless that's their thing. So, I mean, there are some publications that are really into kind of sponsored posts and all that sort of stuff, right? And I guess really this is accept that that's, that's, their, that's their thing, but luckily at TechCrunch, it's, it's not ours. Right? So, yeah, I'm just lucky that there are still publications that can make money and, and pay us to do good work, right? And that's an interesting point on, you know, pay us, most journalists nowadays, thankfully, are, are, are salaried and paid to do the good work. I think that's the case more often than not. There's 
interesting things that you find online and different theories by which, you know, or, or how journalists should be remunerated. And there's one uh, theory that is it's, it's uh, the amount of money that a journalist earns is directly correlated to the amount of readers that that story has because the amount of clicks on a post, for example, once again, directly correlates to uh, advertising revenue. Uh, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the idea that the virality of a story could directly link to the remuneration of that journalist? Would you work for a publication that paid in that fashion? Well, I have. I, when I was at ZDNet, we had uh, almost almost a scheme that paid us um, on traffic. It was basically each month they would look at how much traffic you generated and they would put you into a, a tier. So there were different tiers. So I think I would always, I would regularly get up a couple of the of tiers, like tier two or three. Um, and what that did was it, it gamified the amount, like not just the content you would write, because in all honesty, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that good at sort of writing for a viral audience. I find it kind of slightly boring. I still like to write what I like to write about. And in fact, one mm. thing that I've, I've learned is I'm really bad at writing about something that doesn't interest me. Right? Like, um, I remember once I said to um, Richard McManus, who founded Rewrite Web, when I used to work with him, I said to him, look, I'm, I'm not covering that. It doesn't interest me. And I think it was him who said, uh, sometimes you've got to cover stuff that doesn't interest you because it might interest readers, but I'm terrible at that. So ZDNet, what I learned to do was I would write what I wanted to write, and occasionally I would come up with sort of viral things. So I remember I used to write about Second Life, the, um, the virtual, on, you know, the uh, virtual online sort of environment. And um, you, in, in Second Life, you would build these virtual places. So someone built a replica of Amsterdam and it got right. sold to somebody else for $50,000. And my headline was Amsterdam sold for $50,000, right? Like typical <laughs> viral. And that did really well. But back then I would like get it submitted to deep.com, which is a bit like uh, Reddit or Hacker News back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I would get all my friends and all these influence diggers to upload my articles and they would go absolutely onto as viral. And I would move up the top of the tiers, right? And so you end up spending too much time trying to spread your articles on networks, social networks, and taking away from actually doing like the writing and the research. And do you know so what I mean? From your experience, it seems that you still write it about stuff that you know had a, a real fascination for you, which is good. But there's in, in that method by which journalists are paid, there could be a temptation to just write stuff that gets loads of clicks. And then I would imagine the knock on effect of that is you're creating journalists, uh, journalism just to uh, appease the masses and just to gain clicks and be uh, spectacular rather than to actually be interesting and to get your hands dirty and really do something good. I think, it, I, think I would look at it like this. Look, even new, old newspapers back in the day, they would always want to write stories that were popular because that shifted newspapers, right? So I don't really think mm. the internet made people write necessarily more popular like stuff more popular what it's done is it's disincentivized stuff that you know won't be that popular so it's more the other way around it's more that it's not that you necessarily write loads and loads of stuff more that you think is going to resonate with a large audience because i mean come on like unless you're an absolute niche niche publication like that's what you're you need to do and that's what you would have done before the internet right the difference is because the internet can can give you such amounts of like granular data on which articles are doing well and where and when, right? The temptation is, I think, in the industry as a whole, is 
It's not I'm going to write more viral stuff. It's that there now is there is no incentive to spend three weeks working on a story that you think is not going to get very much uptake, even if it's important in a kind of altruistic sense. Does that like make sense? Like that's to me the danger. It's not. It's not I'm going to spend more time writing popular stuff. It's that I now have less of a reason to justify from in a financial way for spending a, a lot of resources on something that you have no guarantee is going to blow up. That does make a lot of sense. And also to be what you said from another point of view is that the internet doesn't equate to doom and gloom for journalism. It hasn't created clickbait almost. It was just on paper before. Yeah, it's just, it's just much more measurable. And you can obviously have, I mean, there's startups that exist that help publications figure out, you know, what might go viral and when they should post it on, on social networks or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it is becoming more mechanical. And like I say, that I mean, the internet brings transparency in terms of data to every single business, every industry, right? And journalism is no different. It's being disrupted by the fact that you can now see very quickly a link between even, you can even like do things like A-B tests. Uh, headlines, right? It's not something that, I, that we do particularly. I don't think we do it at all. I, I don't anyway, personally. Um, I'm not, I, I'm old school. I just write terrible headlines. But, um, and you know, awesome, you A-B uh, test headlines, like you A-B test a user sign-up form. I mean, it's, like I say, as the entrepreneurs listening, journalism has been disrupted probably in exactly the same way as every single industry that digital has reached so far, right? And in a way, we're just at the beginning, aren't we? Like we ain't seen nothing yet. And on that on that note, we're at the beginning. Another thing, well, if not the beginning, we're just past the starting line is content being created by everyone. Uh, we've had almost the feeling out stage where company blogs were usually like graveyards for kind of boring content to company blogs becoming more and more interesting and more and more original. In this landscape where more and more uh, individuals, organizations, etc., are creating content, does that make the job of being a journalist harder? And do you think, given this proliferation of content from all sides, that the job of being a journalist, a professional journalist, will ever reach a, an extinction? Um, I don't know about extinction. I don't think so. But I hope not. Not, not before <laughs> I'm gone. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I know you're talking about like content marketing stuff, right? You know, the idea that, like you say, company blogs, um, they're actually, you know, sometimes they're employing ex-journalists and stuff. But, I don't know, I, I don't buy into much of that. I mean, can you honestly say you've ever read anything on a company blog that you've, like, remembered and you thought, wow, that was great. Like, that, uh, I'm so glad that existed and that couldn't be done better by an, an actual journalistic operation. I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. I can't think of anything I've read in the last 12 months on a company blog that has been particularly um, insightful. I, d- I think, look, I think I'm quite old school. A journalist is there to hopefully scratch beneath the surface and reveal some truth and bring some transparency to what you're covering. So for me, I'm very, very clear. Like, what I do in my job at my best, and I don't always achieve this, is I like to cover the, the products and the and the, and the funding rounds and whatever the stories I'm covering in such a way that I'm just prodding a little bit harder and just asking some of the questions that people 
don't necessarily want to be asked and don't always follow the sort of PR angle and, and you know, try and find some insider insight. I mean, I, I tweeted about this the other day. I don't get that many huge, big scoops. I get the odd one and they're great and they're fantastic. Um, but I try to inject like a tiny, like a micro scoop or a little bit of insider insight that, that mm-hmm. I've managed to get through just talking with entrepreneurs and, and um, VCs and other other actors in the industry, like I talk to a lot of people every single day. Sometimes I pull people up with no agenda whatsoever. And then what happens is six months later when a story comes out, I'm able to add some insights and context or sometimes, you know, an actual source, you know, somebody, something that people don't want to be necessarily told. And in doing that, I hope that readers, especially someone like TechCrunch, where it's often young entrepreneurs or people thinking about leaving the company and starting one of their own, that they just get a little bit more of a truthful understanding of how these elements in the industry work. And, you know, so I did a story the other day about, you know, a startup that had failed, right? And I didn't just go, oh, look, they failed, but they spent loads of money having parties when they should have done. I actually sort of tried to put the two sides of whether they failed because they didn't execute, execute properly, or did they fail because the model just doesn't work anyway, right? And, and I did that by sourcing, you know, I got a leak, a lot of data. I talked to sources off the records. I talked to, obviously, the company itself on the record. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I enjoyed doing because I think journalism is there to seek the, the truth or at least a better version of the truth, right? And, and so going back to your whole thing about how you pay for that, you know, I say I've never, I haven't really figured it out. I think people are still playing with different models. And as long as uh, good journalists exist, do you think journalism as a as a career will exist or as a job will exist? Because I suppose I wasn't just talking about the company blogs, almost the faceless company blogs and such, but individual experts from industries that seem to really have a willingness to, to a certain extent, lift the lid a little. They're getting better and better, it seems. Uh, well, and from, yeah, good argue they're doing journalism. If you take journalism as more of a kind of state of mind, right? Mm. I think... Um, I think what the internet has changed, and I think some people are very comfortable with this and some people aren't, is like most journalists are nowhere bigger than the publication they write for, right? Like I get like so much attention from people emailing me and asking my opinion on stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm under no illusion, right, that the draw is TechCrunch, right? But at the same time, with the way the internet operates and Twitter and stuff, the individual writers are also their own brand, right? And it's very sort of millennial that we are the, you know, that you are the brand as well. So it's like, I think when you get these individual bloggers who can become experts in their own, in their own domain, I mean, that's just a great way of establishing a reputation and you can do consultancy or whatever, but it's also a great way of getting into journalism. And I always say to, to I get asked by young people, they're like, how can, I, how can I get into journalism? I want to do something like what you do. And I'm just like, pick a topic and start writing about it, right? It's like it's never been easier to, to start writing and get published because if no one will publish you, you just publish yourself. And, I mean, you see this with, um, with the 20-minute VC podcast. Pick a topic <laughs> and start tapping up people and writing about it, in this case, uh, recording podcasts. And I, I don't think the barriers to entry in that sense have ever been lower, right? I think it's amazing. I mean, when I was starting out, 
I would have to go to Matt World or The Guardian and beg, you know, beg an editor, give me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and do you think this increases meritocracy as almost the public are voting with their views or with their clicks on a private, you know, like Harry, take Harry as an example, because, you know, as you well know, a few Bullets and Partners have been on Harry Stebbing's <laughs> podcast, 20 Minute VC, and I think it's great myself. Harry started that, as you say, from one intro right at the beginning and has made it into a fantastic show and through the meritocracy of it being a good show and loads of people listening to it he's risen to to some kind of prominence do you think that's opened the door for more people like him and that's a good thing fundamentally right yes definitely it's definitely made it at a very low at a very entry level made it much more um much more of a level playing field i mean you know if you look at the media it reflects a lot of other industries that it tends to be still very dominated by people that went to certain universities, you know, white, male, middle class. But I like to think with the internet, as I say, that if you want to get into content writing, you want to get into journalism, certainly that sort of blogger level, like nobody can really stop you. You just need to pick pick your subject, be passionate about it and and try to learn how how to make your stuff have a little bit more edge. I mean, not to pick on Harry, but... I'm sure if you listen to the early episodes, to some of the episodes more recently, you know, he's become a little bit more better at asking tougher questions and kind of finding his whole his whole niche and his whole thing. Thank you very much for coming on, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, okay. cheers, man. <laughs>